Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 9 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. Edward's Continental Policy, 1272-1289, Part 2. The triumph of Charles over Margaret in the kingdom of Arles was the more bitter, as it was attended by a still more signal victory over her at her son's court. About 1280, the specious and dexterous Angevin had insinuated himself so completely into the good graces of his nephew that Margaret's influence was practically destroyed. From 1280 to his death in 1285, Philip saw only with the eyes of his uncle, and abandoning San Luis' policy of the gradual development of France, embarked in grandiose schemes of aggression in Spain and Italy, which simply served the Angevin interests. The results of this new policy of the French king were extremely important to Edward and England. The ink of the Treaty of Amiens was hardly dry when fresh difficulties arose with France on account of Edward's enemy obtaining the first place in Philip's councils. The consequences were soon seen. Since 1276, France had been at war with Castile and had laid violent hands on Navarre. Edward had labored strenuously to bring about peace between Philip and Alfonso. In 1279, at Pope Nicholas's suggestion, a conference was fixed to meet at Bayonne in which Edward was to act as mediator between his brother-in-law and his cousin. Then came the change of French policy which resulted from the triumph of Charles of Anjou. Edward's mediation was curtly rejected. Charles's son, the Prince of Salerno, was appointed mediator in his place, and even the King of Castile showed the utmost distrust of Edward. The English king was deeply annoyed. You know, he wrote to Philip, that I have wished to labor to bring about peace through my own efforts, but the King of Castile has discovered that I am too lazy and too sleepy to be entrusted with so delicate a task. Edward's anger with Philip made him fall readily into the new intrigues by which Margaret of Provence sought to wreak her vengeance upon the Angevin. He sent his faithful seneschal of Gascony, the Savoyard, John de Grailly, a man of great ability and experience, to assist his aunt in carrying out their plans. The widowed queen, Eleanor, threw herself actively into the scheme. 
Edmund of Lancaster and Champagne, disgusted that the French had taken Navarre out of his wife's hands, became an ardent partisan of Margaret. In the autumn of 1281, a crowd of feudal chieftains met at Macon in Burgundy and pledged themselves to prosecute her claims over Provence by force of arms. In 1282, the parties to the League of Macon were to meet in arms at Lyon. Edward himself promised to send troops to the rendezvous. If he could not win the Arelate for his daughter, he might now hope to secure it for his kinsmen of the House of Savoy, to whom he was now, as ever, most warmly attached, but for whom, since the terrible experience of the Barons' Wars, he could do hardly anything on English soil. But the great plans of the Confederates of Macon were never destined to be realized. The statesmen of the 13th century could form great plans of international intervention, but they seldom had force sufficient at their command to realize them. A motley league of feudal seigneurs could do but little against the kings of France and Naples. Edmund of Champagne was too weak, Edward himself was too distant to be of much real help to them. Philip III labored vigorously to reconcile his uncle and mother. Margaret, despairing of the way of warfare, was forced to leave her cause in the hands of her son's lawyers, who finally awarded her a money compensation for her abandoned rights over Provence. Edward's conduct all through was both honorable and able, and increased materially his position in the eyes of Europe. France, however, remained the real victor, and in 1284 the marriage of the heiress of Navarre and Champagne, Count Edmund's stepdaughter, to Philip the Fair, the son and heir of Philip III, destroyed the last hopes of establishing a new English principality in France. Edmund's tenure of the regency of Champagne was thus abruptly brought to an end. As soon as his wife's daughter had entered into her twelfth year, its custody passed over to her youthful husband, the future king of France. Except in name, Champagne now lost its independence. It was soon destined to swell the domains of the French crown. Renewed troubles now beset Edward in Aquitaine, which was still governed by the Seneschal Grailly. But these sink into insignificance as compared with the great revolution which followed the Sicilian Vespers in 1282. The dominion of Charles of Anjou was thrown off with energy by the Sicilians, who called upon Peter, king of Aragon, to be their king. Charles, who maintained himself in Naples, now united with the Pope in urging his nephew, Philip III, to join in a holy war against the Aragonese, who thus presumed to trespass on the lands granted to the Angevin by the Holy See. Edward carefully kept aloof from the quarrel, when a foolish proposal was made that the dispute of Charles and Peter should be fought out in a tournament at Bordeaux, he refused to take any part in so fantastic a business. 
No, he wrote to Charles, that to gain two kingdoms, such as Sicily and Aragon, I would not be the umpire of such a battle, but I will strive manfully to bring about peace and concord between you. His earnest mediation produced no result. In 1285, Philip III led a so-called crusade into Aragon, but his army was discomfited and he himself perished beyond the Pyrenees. His death marks not merely the end of a reign, but the end of an epoch. Within a few months, Charles of Anjou, Peter of Aragon, and Pope Martin IV, the furious French partisan, were also in their graves. The new French king, Philip the Fair, at once withdrew from the crusade. The new king of Aragon, Alfonso III, left to his younger brother James the dangerous and precarious throne of Sicily. The new king of Naples, Charles II of Salerno, was a prisoner of his Aragonese rival. No party had force or energy to accomplish anything great, and all now longed for peace and turned to the strong and impartial King of England as the one monarch in Christendom who was both willing and able to mediate between these conflicting claims. Edward now saw a chance of realizing his dearest ambitions. In 1286 he quitted England and did not return until 1289. At Amiens, he met the new king of France, Philip IV, who accompanied him to Paris, where he performed the homage due to his overlord for Guienne and obtained a final settlement of his claims on Lower Quercy. Thence he traveled to Bordeaux, which became his headquarters for nearly three years. He at once busied himself in procuring peace between the French and Aragonese, sparing neither expense nor trouble to reconcile the fierce antagonists. At Christmas time, he presided over a grand conference of envoys at Bordeaux. In the summer of 1287, he held a personal interview with Alfonso III, the new king of Aragon, at Oleron in Béarn, where he succeeded in persuading Alfonso to agree to release the imprisoned king of Naples in return for a large ransom and a recognition of Alfonso's brother James as king of Sicily. Confident that peace was once more established in Europe, Edward again took the cross at Bordeaux and busied himself with preparations for a new crusade. But the Pope repudiated the treaty, whereupon Edward set himself to work once more on his peaceful mission. In 1288, Edward concluded a second treaty, which resulted in Charles's release. Edward himself finding nearly all the money for his ransom. But no sooner was the king of Naples a free man than Pope Nicholas IV released him from his oaths and the war was renewed, though now limited to Italy. Edward warmly denounced Nicholas for stirring up warfare among Christian kings at the very moment when the Christian cause was at its last gasp in Syria. 
he sent an envoy to Italy, who procured a truce between the King of Naples and Sicily. Despite the furious partisanship of the popes and the greed and perfidy of the temporal princes, Edward had brought about his great work, the pacification of Europe. The successful mediator of the great peace now stood in the very foremost rank of European sovereigns, but all his hopes for a crusade were doomed to disappointment. Urgent business called him back to England, and the pressure of the Scottish succession question and of constitutional difficulties at home diverted his mind from the affairs of the continent. The three-year sojourn of Edward in Aquitaine was an epoch-making period in the history of Gascony. Whatever leisure the great mediation allowed, Edward devoted to putting the affairs of his French dominions on a sound and satisfactory basis. He crushed a formidable conspiracy at Bordeaux, which sought with French help to undermine his power and dealt out stern and rigorous justice to the traitors. Yet he did his best to promote the commerce of Aquitanian capital and posed as the benefactor of all the cities of his duchy, seeking in them his best support against the turbulent feudal nobility. A characteristic part of his policy was the setting up of a class of new towns called Bastides, which were at once centres of expanding commerce, bulwarks of the English power, and refuges for the country folk in times of war and trouble. Many of the most flourishing cities of Aquitaine look up to Edward as their founder. Some, such as Sauveterre, the safe land, suggest in their names the object of their establishment. Among all the Bastides of Edward's foundation, Libourne, which took its name from Leyburn, the Kentish village, which gave its name to Edward's Gascon seneschal, is the chief. Situated at the confluence of the Dordogne and the Ile, at the highest point where the wine-ships that traded with Edward could sail up from the sea, Libourne was admirably situated for trade and no less well-placed as an outpost of the military defense of Guienne against French aggression and as a refuge in time of war for the neighboring country folk. It grew so rapidly that at one time it bade fair to be a rival to Bordeaux itself. It soon reduced to insignificance its older neighbors like Fronsac, hidden away under the slopes of its vine-clad hill, and the more famous Saint-Emilion, where a great military station had gradually grown up on the slopes of the strange amphitheatre, round which clustered the dense mass of houses that had gathered round the rock-hewn church of the hermit saint. Its plan, simple and regular as that of an American city, was that of all the class of Bastides. Its eight main streets, as straight if not as broad as those of its American antitypes, radiated from a central square wherein the public buildings were situated. Ample charters of liberties attracted a numerous population within its strong walls. 
but the modern Libourne contains but little that reminds one of the age of Edward. Its steady and long-continued prosperity has allowed but few memorials of the remote past to be seen in its busy streets. It is in some of the remoter and less prosperous of Edward's foundations that the characteristic features of the Bastide type can best be studied. Little towns such as Beaumont and Montpazier, placed on the extreme northeast frontier of Edward's dominions, in the rolling hill country between the Dordogne and the Lowe, and still far removed from railroads or great highways, preserve to this day in their quaint, arcaded central square, straight-cut narrow lanes, fortified churches, and picturesque houses, walls, and gateways, an appearance not very dissimilar to that which they must have possessed when they were built, all at one time at the bidding of their English duke. Yet even in his policy of founding towns in Aquitaine, Edward struck at no original line of his own. He was neither the first nor the only founder of Bastides. Alphonse of Poitiers built the great Bastide of Villefranche de Rouergue. Saint-Louis himself created one of the most important of Bastides in the new town of Carcassonne, still dominated by the wonderful fortress of the Cité, crowning the steep hill beyond the Ode, whose walls, first set up by West Gothic kings and Languedocian counts, and restored to almost their present shape by Saint-Louis, still remain as the perfect type of a medieval stronghold. Every little prince and bishop followed the example of the greatest lords of the South, and Edward was only one of a crowd of imitators. Yet he carried out his work of imitation with such energy and persistence that nowhere was the Bastide type of town more thoroughly established than in his Aquitanian inheritance, and nowhere did the new towns have more important and lasting influence over the land which they both dominated and protected. Edward busied himself with improving the administrative system of Gascony and in attracting the Gascon gentlemen to the service of their dukes, both at home and in England. His seneschal, John de Grailly, gave him efficient assistance. He was one of the many Savoyards who had sought promotion in the lands ruled by Eleanor of Provence. Abandoning his home, now called Grilly, a few miles north of Geneva, he became by Edward's favor one of the territorial magnates of Aquitaine and the founder of a house whose descendants, three centuries later, mounted the French throne. His elevation shows not only Edward's constant regard for his mother's people, but some sort of design of setting up new families unconnected with the region and owing everything to the king as a counterpoise to the old feudal aristocracy. By such wise measures, Edward laid the foundation of that close union of the duchy and kingdom which lasted through the storms and troubles of a century and a half. He could not change the conditions of his rule there, but he organized and simplified 
the chaotic constitution of a feudal state. Nowhere can his claims to statecraft be better demonstrated than in his government of Aquitaine. We have dwelt at length, perhaps disproportionate length, on Edward's early continental policy, but no side of his career throws greater light on his statesmanship, and no side of it is less generally known in England. It has become the fashion to say that Edward's great merit was that he gave up all thoughts of the unprofitable Aquitanian heritage and threw his whole energies into purely British questions. That Edward was above all things an English king, no one will deny. That the most important results of his work were seen in the organization of English institutions and in the attempted extension of English rule over the rest of the British islands is equally plain. But it is very false in a one-sided view that ignores his constant and vivid interest in his Aquitanian inheritance and that puts aside, as of no account, his watchful care of English interests in Europe and his constant efforts in cases where direct English interests were very little involved to uphold some sort of European balance while strenuously striving to preserve or restore the peace of Europe. Edward's European policy was preeminently a policy of peace and mediation, but it is not to be ignored because his reign was marked by no great continental wars of his own seeking and because it requires some efforts to unravel the tangled threads of diplomatic negotiations through which Edward made his influence felt all over Europe. Not the least striking side of his policy of mediation is its amazing modernness. Yet Edward was above all things a man of the Middle Ages, though medieval aspirations after a crusade jostle strangely with his modern conceptions of a political balance and a policy of interests. But the truth is that too much has been made of the contrast between medieval and modern, or if we like it better, we may say that there was already a modern side in the policy of the great national kings who in the 13th century had begun to replace feudalism. There was a European political system before the days of Francis I and Charles V, and there was need for a Wolsey in the 13th almost as much as in the 16th century. 13th century statesmen were not, as we are commonly told, altogether absorbed in home problems to look abroad and take a comprehensive view of the European situation. They were as well able to plan the partition of a neighboring state or the degradation of a rival as their descendants of modern times. What makes the real difference between them is that they had not sufficient material resources at their command to carry out with any effect the bold combinations which they had plotted. Edward's favorite projects partake of this characteristic ineffectiveness, but unlike Charles of Anjou or Philip the Fair, he limited himself for the most part to what was immediately practicable and immediately necessary. 
His wider schemes, such as those for the revival of the Arelate, show medieval statecraft in its feeblest and most impotent shape. But when all deductions are made, Edward remains one of the greatest of English kings even in his foreign relations. He won for England a sure and foremost place in the councils of Europe. His honesty of purpose and his ability of conception have won the warmest praises both from his own contemporaries abroad and from those modern foreign writers to whose works we must, to the disgrace of English scholarship, have recourse if we wish to learn how truly great was the great English king, when all Europe welcomed him as the mediator of peace, when his friendship was sought by every power of Western Europe, and when he made the name of England respected and feared in Germany, in France, in Spain, and in Italy. End of section 9。Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.